Welcome to the Bold Moves Academy, an online resource and podcast series produced in partnership with Klarna for Business and the Industry Dot Fashion. The Bold Moves Academy is designed to celebrate an extraordinary lineup of individuals whose bravery, vision, and dedication have moved the fashion industry forward. The business founders featured in this series have all done something different from creating new ways of shopping or taking on global giants to placing innovation, sustainability and ethics at the forefront of their business. Via podcasts and downloadable profiles, our Bold Moves lineup will share their stories and learnings to help inspire others to make a bold move of their own. We hope you enjoy their stories. This edition was recorded at an event in front of a live audience at Soho House in London. The assembled fashion brands, retailers and entrepreneurs had come to the venue to hear the story of the bold move of the founder of one of the most influential British fashion businesses of the past 20 years. Nick Robertson, founder of ASOS, told the audience and me, Loretta Roberts, editor-in-chief of the industry.fashion, how he applied the expertise he had built in the media and marketing industry to the then embryonic online fashion market. And in the process, after many years of hard work, started a revolution. ASOS rode the wave of the celebrity-led fashion boom that began in the mid-2000s, offering 20-something fashion-obsessed consumers instant access to the looks of the stars they'd seen in magazines and later on social media. The business subsequently evolved to be less dependent on celebrity influence and became a trendsetter in its own right through its own label and its complementary mix of the best of the high street and independent brands. Today, the business boasts sales of more than £4 billion and is well on its way to being a true global force. Nick stood down as CEO of the business in 2015, but remains a shareholder and still sits on its board. As he tells us, it would be too much of a wrench to walk away altogether from the business he conceived and headed for 15 years. Nick gives us a candid insight into what the early years were like for the business, why he enjoyed the initial struggle of running a startup despite the many challenges, and where he believes the opportunities lie for today's fashion entrepreneurs. For more inspirational stories from leading fashion entrepreneurs, check out the rest of the Bold Moves podcast series in partnership with Klarna for Business. In the meantime, let's hear from Nick. I'm Loretta Roberts, the editor-in-chief of the industry.fashion, and it's delightful to see you all here this morning. This is obviously Nick Roberts and the founder of ASOS, fabulous Nick. It's been what we were just talking about. It. I think it's seven and a half years since I last sat down and interviewed you. We used to do this quite a lot. And um, so we're having flashbacks today. Um, big, big thank you to Nick for agreeing to do this because he doesn't do this very much anymore, if not, if at all. So um, for you, for me, bless you. Thank you. Um, this event is a culmination of a programme that we've been working on with Klarna called Bold Moves. And it's about entrepreneurs and it's about people like you. Many of you are entrepreneurs who have done brave things in your careers and found new, new niches and changed the industry. And they gave me a brief and said, could you find somebody who did something brave and changed fashion? I mean, that was quite a big ask. But the first person that came to mind said yes so thank you very much we really appreciate it I wasn't lucky that was rubbish you said Natalie was in New York Natalie was in New York yeah <laughs> Natalie Massey doesn't live here anymore so we asked Nick no so I, I was that was a, I genuinely no, didn't no. ask her right okay just so you know. <laughs> I didn't think you'd say yeah but you did say yes that's nice and we're going to talk about Nick's career um because it's an interesting one 
and you're going to get the chance once I've done a bit of an interview to ask questions because it's a really tough thing to do to set up a business and you all have my admiration for doing so. And I thought it would be very inspirational to hear from somebody who did it. But we don't want to just talk about all the good times because ASOS has been a phenomenally successful business. But I wanted to start talking about the bit that was maybe a bit difficult in a good way. Um, so I think uh, I'm going to go back to the very beginning. I'm going to take you back to school because I want to talk about that on behalf of your poor parents. Um, <laughs> then we'll talk about how you set up ASOS. But I want to talk about the point at which... You were looking to replace yourself as CEO. You had been CEO since it started in 2000. And I think we had lunch in about, I don't know, say 2014, something like that. And you were saying to me, oh, I think I might take a step back. I've, had it, I've, I've, I've taken it this far. The next few years are all about 20, 30% growth. That's not really interesting to me. Frankly, I'm a little bit bored. And you said to me these words and... I sort of scoffed at them at the time, but then I went away and thought about it. And I thought, actually, I do believe he's speaking the truth. And you said to me, I miss the struggle. I miss the struggle. There'll be people out here who are in the midst of the struggle thinking, really? Enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> what was the struggle? And what did you like about it? Um, that's a good one. So, oh, blimey. Um, it's true, though. You did, though. You you seemed like a happier well, person. There's definitely the a phase where... Yeah. where you know, your livelihood just depends on it. So, so it is a struggle. Everything's a struggle, but in a good way. And and the, and the sort of camaraderie you have, and the team spirit you have, and the jump out of bed in the morning because you, you know, we don't like struggle generally, but you know, because everything's a struggle, that's kind of what you're used to, and that just becomes ingrained. And when that sort of slows, um, it wasn't that it wasn't a struggle. There were just really different struggles, and 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 there were struggles that I didn't enjoy. So, you know, struggling. Um, you know, at, at its most basic level, at, there's one point in the journey where you know everybody in the office. If you want something done, you know exactly who to go to. Um, if you don't know who to go to, you know exactly who to go to to find the person. You, you know, and, and it's all manageable. And suddenly you sort of break out into this place where you're looking around and you don't know half the people. And you certainly don't know what they do. And then, and then when you want something done, it's like, well, who do I go to for that? And then, and then everything just takes infinitely longer than it ever used to. And there are some good reasons for that. But there's some bad reasons for that, right? And the, the good reasons are everybody needs a bit of a process and everybody needs clarity. And so plans can't just be on the hoof like they always used to be. Yeah. But also you just sort of get drained because stuff that you want doing just doesn't happen in the time frame you need it to. So that, that does that sort of explain it? Yeah, you, no, you just, I get You tire it. of that bit of it and, and, and you know, stupid because it's a lovely yeah. situation to be in where you've got so big that actually you don't know who everybody is and what they do. Mm. But But it does, it just takes out that sort of little bit of the fun that you used to have yeah. running around. Because you always, I've always said to people, somebody asked me, they were writing an article about you and they asked me to describe you and I said, oh, he talks really quickly and he walks really quickly. Uh, and and you, uh, <laughs> they laughed and, cool. and, actually, and he's really nice but actually he's hard as nails. I remember saying that and you, you did read that and you were like, oh, fair enough. But you you were always like on the move. Like you, I, c I can imagine things not going quickly for you is just a bit frustrating. I, I can see that about you. Yeah, it's always hard to sort of look at yourself. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't have much patience. No, so, nor do I. So, no. so when it comes to things you want done in a hurry and it's not happening, then then that grates. Yeah. And classic, I'll just do it myself. Yeah. Well, ultimately, yeah. it's a lot easier to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting because you, you actually really enjoyed building it, you know, um, and overcoming some challenges. 
Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you. I, I, you know, we were the lucky ones. Weren't we? The first first five years were awful because we just had no money and it was a struggle and mm. nobody was shopping online and we were rubbish and it was just horrendous. <laughs> um, but, you know, then we had that lovely sort of 10-year period and it was just it, phenomenal. It know? was, wasn't it? It was brilliant. It was brilliant. a real and, purple And the patch. spirit and the mm. fun and, you know, it was... You know, ASOS was fun and hard work, and, and it was in that order, yeah. really. Yeah. And we just loved it. And I sort of lost 30 years of my life and my liver, <laughs> probably as a result. It was that two, 2005, 2010. It was the uh, whole amazing, kind yeah. of, I mean, dare I say it now, but it was that whole fast fashion era, wasn't it? And Grazia, and it was all, everybody just suddenly loved yeah. fashion. And it was, yeah. and you were the darlings of all that, yeah. weren't you? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's the sort of the irony behind all of it. You know, we had no fashion background. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'd never worked in fashion. We've had this conversation. I know, yeah. and it's just it's just bizarre that we, we managed to end up being big in fashion, having no fashion experience whatsoever. We can talk about that. I won't talk about it. Because you and I would always talk about this. I used to go out with Nick and be like... Fluffy. What are you wearing? Real fluffy stuff. What are you wearing? <laughs> yeah, but, but let's go back. I want to go back to... Let's just go back then to school, right? Because you are, as far as I'm concerned, an absolute natural entrepreneur. And I just want to know where that started because you did appallingly at school, didn't you? And entrepreneurs often do. What were you like at school? Were you one of those kids that always knew they were going to do their own thing? Were you confident? Did you have any clue? No. No, not, none of the above. None of the um, above. What were you like? I love school. I absolutely, you know, really enjoyed it, but but I wasn't particularly uh, successful in the academic world. But, you know, we've sort of learned a bit of mm. that. You know, I've got kids now going through school and you can see they're completely different. And, and you can see that mm. one is quite happy to sit down with a book and read it and learn it. The other one just wants to do a million other things other than that. And I think yeah. I was probably more in you that, that camp. Yeah. Um, and techniques for learning, and you know, you know, people have, that's evolved as people have understood how people different brains mm. work mm. um so so i don't think i was suited to the sort of sit down and learn power fashion type no exercises which is what we had to do what um, did you want to do did you have a clue did you think um no i, I was um you know i wasn't particularly gifted in any area uh it wasn't it wasn't like i was sporty or creative i just sort of middle middle ground um but but you know i always have sort of holiday jobs and then then uh i did that Ski resort job, which was quite fun at 18. Um, <laughs> um, and then came back vowing I was going to quickly do another ski set. And anyway, ended up going up to London to work and then just fell into advertising marketing because my dad had, you know, worked for um, TV contract on the sales side. Right. Um, so he kind of got me a job at an ad agency on the on the media side, so the media buying side. And, you know, that was fantastic. So you're 18, you're in London, you're driving a Golf GTI, you're getting paid very handsomely. God. Getting wined and dined every day, and it was an absolute dreamy. The dream, absolute dream job. So, so I was very lucky in that regard. And then I spent ten years sort of doing that and working my way up through marketing you, and advertising. Were you thinking along that journey? I'm going to do my own thing, or was there just a moment where you um, had a light bulb, as it were? And thought, I'm going to do ASOS. No, I mean you know it's it's, it's um, fairly well known fact, but my my brother is older, is five years older. Yeah. So there's always, you know, that sort of rivalry. I don't know if anybody's got older siblings. I have, um, yeah. Especially when he's more sporty, you know, and so like he used to beat me at everything. And um, <laughs> and then he set up on his own. So he, he was in advertising he as well, and he had his own scoop. media buying company. What did you... Well, sorry, he, he had his own media yeah. buying company. Yeah. So I was now sort of 22 in London, earning a little bit. He was 28 in London, driving a Porsche and running around, you know, and I thought, my God, you know, that, that's, that's it. If you can do it yourself and if he can do it, I can certainly do it. 
Um, and then he set up um, Scoot, which mm. was anybody remember Scoot Free Pages? It was kind of the original directory, but sort of it wasn't BT or Thompson. It was it was a uh, and he, he managed to get the phone number, the 0800 192 and that was that's how that was set up. Um, so he sort of went through that. Wow, you know, onto something. He come out of media, set that up, and and because that was online, that was really one of the early online mm. adopters. Um, so I'm sort of looking at that, and I'm looking at what I'm doing, and, and then you sort of you do the math in your head, which is look, you know, I'm earning an okay salary, but actually net, you know, you don't you, you could almost work a couple of bar jobs and probably net out about the same amount. So it's like you know, and at that point you've got no risk in your life. You're not married. You haven't got kids. So it's like you know, well, if he can do that, I can probably give it a go too. So. That's when we set up the business before ASOS, which was uh, entertainment marketing. So it was a, a, like like he had done a, a small marketing business that was um, part owned by Cara, the company that I was working for at the time. So that that's the sort of that's, that's the first the leap, which is look, you know, actually I can do something because I was working for Cara. We had lots of clients, and I knew if we could provide them with this service, those clients would sort of roll in. So it was a fairly low risk entry into sort of setting up our own business but that gives us you know gave us a lot of discipline so a bit mm. like you running yours conversations but you know yeah. you, you you run a tight ship right yeah and um yeah. and we ran a we ran a tight ship it was reasonably su- successful mm. um and then it was the so so i don't know if anybody knows the story but so entertainment marketing was effectively like a, a product placement agency so we would put brands in onto celebrities into tv programs into films um, we would do broadcast sponsorship. You still see it about, you know, where sort of advertisers front and back mm. programs. We would uh, do ad funded programming where, you know, advertisers were paid to effectively produce the content, which they could then brand. So it was sort of, you know, in the absence of programs that they wanted that were suitable, they would make their own programs. We would make those, brand them, and then broadcast them. So, okay. you know, it was all that sort of non-traditional media we talked at the time. But because we were working with celebrities, putting brands on celebrities, that's where the As Seen on Screen came from because it was sort of... How can we, just as the internet was bubbling along, how could we, you know, how could the internet benefit the sort of celebrity product placement thing? Yeah. And it was like, well, hold on. Actually, we could sort of have a website, a web page at the time where we could have the picture of the celebrity, picture of the sunglasses and tell people where the sunglasses were from. I know everybody's sort of going a bit mad, but you know, there was some sort of logic in there. And, yeah. and then it, we thought that we, we thought the brands would pay us to be on this page, right? But mm. obviously they didn't, and we didn't have any traffic. So, the, <laughs> so the, the only way we could do it was to um, to sell the to sunglasses. Sell them. So then, you- um, and then obviously at that point, because my brother had done the one nine two, he had a website. And as as that started to get bigger, the original team who built that really early website was sort of looking for a new challenge. So we took them on. So we were lucky in the early days that we actually had you know. Two of the ten people in the UK probably knew how to build a website at that point. <laughs> um, so we got them on board, and then because my brother made a few quid at Scoot, he put in the first. He put in the first million and a half. Fund it, yeah. you? So you weren't actually necessarily into fashion at the time. It was stuff that celebrities potentially wore, or were see, or things mm. that were in mm. TV shows and films and stuff like that. When did the fashion? focus come into the business and how did that happen because you said yourself and we joke about it, but you weren't into fashion it wasn't your thing you know um no but you know so the experience that i think i bought was this branding and marketing thing so we understood mm. customers we understood having a tightly defined customer group we understand giving those customers what they wanted and and, mm. and at that point it was you know the real heat and now 
magazine sort of generation. Yeah. Um, which seems old fad now, but, you know, mm. back then it was the first well, time. Well, it was the Instagram this... of the day, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. So, you know, it was the first time you had pictures of, you know, aspirational people wearing mm. stuff and it was, you know, where to get it, where to buy it. And so we were the sort of link between the page on a, on a, in a magazine, mm. which was very useful, but obviously had no buy button attached to it. So it was a question of, could we put Close the buy button loop. next to the celebrity wearing the product and then sort of link the whole thing together. Yeah. Um, but really that was because um, the first lady, the first buyer we got um, was Laurie Penn, who was ex-Topshop. There you go. Uh, and she came, she was sort of between jobs at the time um, and she, you know, bless her cotton socks, or said, look, you know, we can go and buy all this other stuff, but actually I'm just going to go down Great Portland Street and see what they got. And she would just come back with bags of clothes and we sort of find a picture that looked a bit like that on some random celebrity and stick it on the website. Unbelievable. And, and off you go. Um, yeah. I feel, I can't remember when I met you, but it wasn't like the destination of choice of fashion, was it, at the time? But you were good fun. So we used to sort of sit next to each other at places, didn't we? In the, on the, in the cheap, sheets, cheap seats, I can't say it, at retail events, that's how I got to know you. But um, what I thought was smart, you, you, what you quickly did once you got the fashion side rocking and rolling is you did persuade some very good people. It was like you literally walked up and down Oxford Street and went into Topshop and River Island and you look whatever and found some really good people and said, come and do this with me. And they took a risk. I mean, it seems crazy now because people would want to go and work for you, but um, at the time they didn't. And I thought it was quite a good lesson there in getting the right people around you because you had some great ones. But Yeah, so that was a journey. So, so Laurie came in and that was fantastic. She had a lot of experience at Arcadia. Yeah. But, you know, she was she was more fashion than... than sorry. She was fashion and commercial, but, yeah. but, but sort of, you know, not as business-minded, if, if that mm. makes sense. And then, you know, when we needed more buyers, we couldn't get them from the fashion industry because nobody would come and you know, leave Topshop to join our scene on screen at the time. So we were relying on buyers who were working in other places. Uh, and that's where we found Mo. And Mo was sort of second in after Laurie. Mo was fantastic. Mo, Mo was a, a buyer at Paper Chase. Ah. But she loved her fashion. And, and it was a kind of, you know, she knew the principles of buying, but wanted to get into fashion and obviously couldn't get into fashion anywhere else because nobody would have taken her from Paper Chase. But we took her and she was a delight. I mean, she was brilliant. Fantastic. Um, it's so quite she, good to get that outside perspective, isn't it? Because you, you looked at it from the outside. She obviously did. And I think that sometimes when you do that, you get a better result and somebody's entrenched, you know. Well, the, 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 you know, the, 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 that that was where the war with Philip Green came in because, you know, you know we, we were looking at it through a completely different lens. Yeah. We were going, right, customer on website, present them with everything they could possibly ever want in the world of fashion. Because we're looking at Amazon over there and they were literally adding categories by the day. You know, it's like, oh my God, you know. And then, so we had Amazon over there adding categories by the day. We're with the mindset going, right, let's just keep adding more and more fashion to this website. We didn't care, you know, obviously there needed to be brands that were relevant. But even in that journey, you know, the brands that are relevant, you can't get because they're on fire and they don't want to be with you. So you're getting the brands that are sort of relevant, but just tipped into their, they're now looking for other partners, wholesale partners, so, you know, expand their sort of reach, or maybe just tipped off the, off the, you know, and needed a bit of a kick. Um, so, we, you know, we, that domino effect of getting those, you know, I remember it was like Box Fresh was one of the first ones in and Bench, you know, back in the day. But as soon as they start tipping in, then, then the yeah. other ones start rolling up. But we, we, you know, we were solving a completely different problem, which is how could we put as many brands in one place? Um, and then we look at the department stores and go, well, that's not unusual. You know, department mm -hmm. stores put all these brands in one place. So why wouldn't we? And we'd be having the conversations with, you know, the River Islands and the Top Shops and the New Looks. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were sort of on the fence. Do I want to? Don't I want to? And, you know, and then we'd walk around Top Shop um, 
the the basement floor, and we go, well, hold on, there's a Topshop brand down there, but he's got fifty other brands down there. You know, that's where they had all these little concessions. Mm, so so it wasn't it wasn't unusual. And department stores have been doing it for years. Topshop was even doing it themselves in their mm. basement of, mm. of flagship. Yeah. But nobody sort of followed suit online. And you know, the, the reason the high street didn't or Topshop didn't do that because he just couldn't get his head genuinely around putting his product next to River Island or New Look in the same. Is that what it was in the same store? Completely. Uh, yeah. Um, whereas a department store was ironically. They would couldn't. in concessions. They wouldn't. I mean, you'd go into a department store and they'd be an Oasis and a Topshop and a. But weirdly, not online. Weird. Well, you know, they were just at a different level in the journey. They were trying to fix a different problem, which is how do I sell more of my own brand? I'm competing against all these people, yeah. so surely if I sit next to them, that's not going to help. And they wanted to develop their own websites at that point. Yeah. But. You know, we, we could just develop ours quicker than, than they could. But but you, you understand the department store bit where yes. so where Natalie benefited because yeah. the brand the brands in the department store weren't owned by Selfridges. You know, Selfridges mm. is a is a rent is a yeah. landlord. So the so even if they'd had a website, they wouldn't have anything to put on it because mm. the product wasn't owned by Selfridges. Yeah. The product was owned by the brand. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm <clears throat> I was gonna ask you about that because it felt like you had it your own way for quite a while, didn't you? Um online because it took the department stores i mean there was all the netaporte in, in luxury they had it their own way in luxury and you kind of had it your own way on the high street side of things for a long time it took everybody a long time to catch on to it and i i wondered were you sort of keep looking and thinking that surely they're going to come and you, i mean you, sure, surely top yeah. shot had to do what we were doing. Yeah. You know, and they already did it in their flagship store. You know, they had other brands down there. So yeah. it would have been logical, but I think they were still just working out how to do it themselves and trying to we, work out. We well, sorry, they, they were always operating against a backdrop of, oh my God, if I sell something online, then that's cannibalizing my, my store. store. You yeah. Know? And, and that, that, that was a sort of 10 year journey in their heads as well to understand that actually they've got to do it. So even if it cannibalizes, don't worry about it because ultimately it'll, it'll sort of work out. You tried you a bit of a fractious relationship, didn't you, you and Philip Green? Because um, <laughs> you two having a bit of a row in front of me once. It's quite funny. I, I, didn't he try and buy you or not properly? I mean, I think he, really in the early days, it, I think he might have offered you like 25 quid and some magic beans or something, but you turned uh, him down. Um, well, he... he he could he he could never do a straight deal. So he yeah. he wanted to buy us or buy a bit of us, but he didn't want to pay for it. So he said, "Well, if I give you Topshop uh, and give you a better margin on it than I would do normally, then you'll make the money back on the margin, and that's how I'll pay for it." And I'm like, "Oh God, Philip, we're we're a public company. For God's yeah, sake. <laughs> you can't do that." That was stuff. what you were having a discussion, uh, I mean, a heated you know, discussion. So, with so about. he was always yeah. trying to be a bit too smart around the deal for his own good. And then, you know, going back to your point, how. You know, we, we were so lucky on the basis that when it started to take off, you know, it was, it was like a third division team just going into the Premier League and going, I'll have that player, that player, that player. And, you know, there was a tipping point where nobody really wanted to come because we couldn't, hadn't quite taken off. Mm. And then there was a point where they couldn't get out of Arcadia quick enough, <laughs> you know. So it was like that lovely. It was, we were almost like sort of batting them away. <laughs> um, and, you know, so so we really were able to cherry pick the, the best, best of the people. best. and and. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like we were asking them to do anything different. We were getting buyers out of Topshop to come and buy at ASOS, right? Mm. And they could either buy own brand or... or Did your own brand really take off? Because that's been quite central, hasn't it? Um, it's it's been yeah. incredible and, and still is. And it's yeah. you know it's not just ASOS, it's the 15 other sort of brands that we cunningly yeah. disguise within the ASOS portfolio. Yeah, you've got all sorts of... Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it was really early days. And that, and that was just Laurie coming back from Great Portland Street with these unbranded... 
things and we go, well, let's stick an ASOS badge in the back. Yeah. Um, so we did. And you know, that was the beginnings of the ASOS Home Prayer. Unbelievable. Yeah. You mentioned there about floating. I wanted to ask you about that because you floated that early, scene on screen really early. Like, so yeah. you set, set the business up in 2000, I think, wasn't it? Was, was it two years, three years before you floated it? Um, yeah, it was like 2001. I mean, yeah. what, even a year? What? Yeah. Well, that, that was a condition of the of the money so my so my brother put in the first million and a half yeah. he found some mates to put in in the, the other millions of two and a half million pounds we raised in total which is <laughs> quite scary it's a lot of money back right? then it's a yeah. lot of money now but you know in relative terms you know mm. you had amazon over there just raised 700 billion. million or whatever it was you know <laughs> so we raised two and a half um, but the condition of the, the sort of next bit of money coming in was that we would float on AIM. Mm. Um, and that was you know, right after it all, and the market had gone wrong. Um, yes, but because we had the other business, entertainment marketing, which had proper revenues and proper profit, we sort of smashed the two together. Okay. And that's how we, uh, we got, got away with it. I suppose what that did, um, for the conversation we were just having actually, is it did bring some business discipline into the company because even though you're this tiny company on aim you still have to report quarterly you have to behave properly you're accountable to your shareholders etc yeah you know if if anybody's sort of questioning do do they don't they um is it worth looking at you know certain things have got to line up you've you've got to have a business that's that's scalable to a good size you know Mm. there's no no point flowing if you're only ever going to turn over five ten million pounds you know but if you're going to turn over 30 40 50 60 million pounds you know then it starts to look sensible Mm. um it gives you discipline really early on uh, because you've got to tick all those boxes um it just means your you know your finance director is probably a slightly higher caliber than it would be in a small private company you know all those sorts of things you've got a proper board structure which kind of helps which Mm. means you can probably get a chair who's got a bit more experience who can um, we had Lord Peter. Ali to begin with. Oh, yeah, Lord Ali. And then you got Peter Williams, didn't you? Well, Peter Williams was uh, non exec. Yeah, he was never chair. He was just a non exec. Oh, it's just a non exec. Okay. Yeah. So Peter Williams was finance director of Selfridge yeah. and then chief exec of Selfridge for a period of time. Yeah, so, you know, quite quickly you have to go surround yourself by. It's a great reward mechanism for staff because suddenly, mm-hmm. you, you know, rather than trying to trade shares in private companies, which we all know is a nightmare, you know, mm-hmm. you've got public paper that you can, you know, reward people on and they can best and stuff. So that works. Yeah. You, you get a disproportionate amount of publicity because the press will write about public companies more than they will private companies because it's in the public domain and people can buy shares. So, you know, there were lots of things sort of early on that, that gave us a much bigger disproportionate punched above your weight. Punch right? above our weight. Yeah. 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 On that journey that you went on, were there moments, I don't know, did you ever stop and think, oh, this is nice. I mean, <laughs> the celebrations, you're like, yes. Yeah, or, or, every time we went to the Retail Week Awards, we'd we, yeah. we win and we didn't get absolutely... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, was, uh, you when you won a retail week award, is that really it? Crying yeah. out loud, Nick? No, it probably wasn't the <laughs> highlight, but you know, it was always quite good fun when we used to go. Oh God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect, I'm not here, either. but uh, really, I think I'm up giving you a couple of awards back in the day. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, there yeah. were uh, there was just amazing times, and we had um, you know that pub next to. Um, a Greater London House. Greater London House. You more or less um, bought that, didn't you? Well, we nearly did, but um, mm. no, you know, that was just fantastic. After work, the buzz, the excitement, mm. and, you know, as the numbers grew, it's just hundreds of people just having. I remember, you, know, you saying to me, like, well, I don't know, oh. late 2000s, you said, I think I've got a billion pound company here. And I was like, oh, very good. He's deluded. And <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, I sort of bump into you on the tube. 
And then all of a sudden, I think we had a driver and a helicopter. No, you didn't have a helicopter, but you know what I mean. I've got a boat, I've got a ski chalet. I mean, it's just like, it was really bizarre to see it. You stayed this, you sort of stayed the same though, didn't you, yourself? But I mean, did you, did, I mean, here's the question really. Did you set out and think, I'm going to get a business that's going to turn over four billion quid and no. global blah? No. 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 That just I mean, happened along the way, right? Um, right, def- definitely no idea of what the, what the scale could be. Yeah, but the sense was, hold on, we're doing something that nobody else is really doing. The market is huge. Mm. If we do it better than anybody else, you know, against the backdrop that customers, and it's still to, still true to some degree. You know, mm. you just, if you make their lives easier, they they're going to be loyal, right? And actually, life easier in fashion is to present as much stuff under one roof so they're not chopping and changing, especially back in the early days yeah. where the website experience across so many of the other brands was so appalling, you know, be it in terms of payment options or delivery or returns policy, or, you know, so you just made it easy. Mm. So we kept looking at that and going, well, blimey, if we got a small percentage of this very big pot, it's going to be a big business. Mm. And then, then we started getting quite a lot of traction internationally. Going, oh my God, we just doubled, you know, trebled yeah. the size of the. I remember you saying pot. once, I've got the biggest fashion e-commerce at the time, business in australia and i've never even been there um, so, <laughs> you have i think you have been since but at that time you have never yeah. been there and we've got the biggest uh, i know it yeah. was crazy you know yeah. the australians loved it because we were bringing you know all the brands that they wanted over there i don't mm. you know I'm sure people understand australian retail but generally mm. speaking the price is that much higher because of all the import mm. duties and stuff um and they you know we were shipping from the uk okay mm. it was taking a little bit longer to get there but in terms of sort of relative price point it was fantastic and we grew to be number one in australia you know, quickly. very quickly yeah. yeah now let's hear from our wonderful partners klana for business redefining shopping not without a bold move with virtual shopping, you'll gain new audiences and achieve up to 70% increase in revenue with Klarna's performance-driven marketing solutions. Say hello to 100 million high-intent shoppers. Visit Klarna.com forward slash UK forward slash business to find out more. I'm going to give you a couple of landmarks. These were actually after you sort of stood back as CEO, because we should say you're still on the board, just the shareholder. We want to talk a little bit about, because I was coming on on the train this morning, you announced your new CEO, didn't you? Like, great. <laughs> That's going to be as good as you. He's not. But I thought what was interesting is when you exceeded the valuation of Marks and Spencer. That was quite a moment, wasn't it? And then when you bought Topshop, had quite a fun exchange of messages with you about that. But did, did you ever? I mean, I, I think we are like you're worth more than Marks and Spencer. I, can't, I thought that was incredible. Well, that that was then. It's not now. Not now. Um, I know. But at the time, it was your Tesla moment, wasn't it? It was like a bit of a. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that that's the. You know, the beauty of a public market and the and the mm. sort of negative of a public market. Is, you know, you can it, yeah. you can go up and down and yeah. you know at that time. But it felt seminal, like it felt like that's it. The the pendulum has swung, right? The, the, you know. Um s- sort of, I suppose. I mean mm. I mean it's really in scale terms now. You know, yeah. ASOS does turn over four billion quid, right? And mm. you know, I remember you know, thinking of Topshot Oxford Circus, which we knew at the time turned over 100 million. And we were turning over like five. And I thought, oh, my God, if we could get to 100 million, that would be unbelievable. <laughs> you know? And four billion later. So, um, you know, but but it's it's challenging online. And, and I've actually got a lot of admiration now for, you know, the next of this world who, oh, you know, have managed to do both, who've managed to keep the margins up, you know, mm. beautifully run by yeah. Simon. Yeah. Um, and just a phenomenal, phenomenal business. And, mm. you know, Marks and Spencer's has has had its challenges it's yeah. clearly sort of coming it's out of the good. bottom um but you know we, we never really sort of competed no with, but it was just it felt like old yeah. guard versus new guard at that time yeah. and let's i want to ask you about 
Topshop because ASOS, interestingly, unlike say Boohoo, um, which has grown through acquisition, you didn't. It was all organic, really, right? Um, but Topshop, did you absolutely have to have it? I mean, was that personal? Was it? because <laughs> <No. laughs> you you saw off sweet. quite you, it was um, sweet yeah but you saw off quite a lot of people that was quite a battle for that brand wasn't it and I thought well, well it was, must an, have it was really an interesting one because actually we, we had the inside trap because we mm. sold a lot of Topshop you know yeah so after I stepped down mm. Philip sort of came on board <laughs> I think I was the blocker actually <laughs> whilst I was still at the helm he was not coming on ASAP but I think you know when other Nick took over then yeah. they sort of patched things up a bit mm. um so then Topshop came on board but it meant we were you know a very big seller of Topshop yeah so in doing the deal we understood the value of it more so than others and, and mm. if others wanted to do the deal they'd have to sort of because we were a big chunk of their wholesale business, right? right. So, so they kind of needed us on board. So that would be us. You know, people were coming to us going, "If we buy it, will you come on board?" And go, hmm, well, maybe, we'll maybe see. not. You know, yeah. so, so we had the sort of inside chance. We we knew what it was worth to us, which was probably more than it was worth to anybody others. else. Yeah. Was that yeah. was a nice moment? I would thought that it was, it was quite sweet I mean, because you did. Like, we got to be fair. You basically wanted to be a thorn in his side and. I didn't, I didn't want to be, you know, well, you and were, I, yes, I spelled it out. I said, look, we will stop <laughs> nicking your staff if you supply us with your brand. You know, we'd, we'd done the sort of side deal with River and New Look and said, look, you know, obviously if we're going to sell you. I'm, I'm not going to keep poaching your mm. staff. And that was one of the sort of quid pro quos. But mm. Philip didn't supply us. So we kept pinching his staff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh well. Mm. well, listen, let's just talk a little bit about now and we've got to be careful because i know you you are a board member and it's a plc so i know mm. we've got to be a bit careful about what mm. we can and can't talk about but um how much time are you spending there now and what else are you getting up to um so, so I, don't, I don't spend a huge amount of time obviously we've got, we've got mm. the board meetings and, mm. and actually the last eight months has been more intense for all board members because we've had so many interviews i can't tell yes. you <laughs> um and it's been a real you know test of of what is ASOS and who 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 can run ASOS? And it, it you know it sounds like an easy job, but actually it's not. Oh, it doesn't sound like an easy job. Um, it? You know, it's a nice job for somebody, the right person. But mm. but we we you know I've interviewed five or six people who've you know got to the sharp end of the process. Yeah. And you know, other than one who eventually pulled out for for another offer, mm. um, you know, the other four weren't quite what we wanted, what we needed. So it's been a real. You know, to have a business without a chief exec for eight months as well. Yeah, is, is... I, I should say the, the reference is that this morning, if you didn't pick the news up on the way in, ASOS has announced its next CEO, yeah. who was actually sitting under your nose all this yeah. time. So, so tell us, tell us, who is Jose? Um, um, so Jose joined about it? two years ago as our sort of um, commercial director, so, so heads the whole retail function. Yeah, uh, he's, he's an unknown CV. quantity here because he his career was well, in well, Spain was and Portugal, yeah. Well, that was definitely, you know, he joined two years ago, but the first year of that, we never met him. You know, he, he was working remotely, as was as was everybody. So he was yeah. sort of a bit slow in that you know, yeah. um, for us to get to know him. Um, but as the process went on, we, we just, you know, we, we came clearer what we wanted ASOS, you know, t who, who, what sort of skill set was, was needed to run it. And, mm. you know, I love this in the regard, because actually this is the first time ASOS has been run by a fashion person. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think with... You know, with where we're going, especially with own brand, mm. um, with the sort of, you know, we, we, we've, we've built a fantastic retail model, but, uh, you know, we're, we're certainly not Inditex in terms of slickness supply chain and all that kind of stuff. And mm. Jose spent a good 
10 years at Intertech. So, you know, yeah. so, we're, so we're hoping sort of the next journey for ASOS, you know, we, we've, we've done well on the delivery platform. We've done well on the technology. I think the next bit to really fix is the whole sort of retail model Interesting. Uh, and the international angle to that. So yeah, to have a, a retailer at the helm now, I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's quite it's quite funny, isn't it? You go far and wide, and then it's like the the guy on Zoom, get him. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit like when I married my PA. The best thing <laughs> right under your nose all the years, and you never see them. <laughs> I don't want to get into that, but well, okay. kind of if you want to. Um, I'm going to ask you just one more quick question, but then I'm going to invite you, the audience, to ask some questions. And if you don't, I'll ask some more because I've always got loads. But when you look at fashion right now. Actually, I've got two more questions. Sorry, I'm going to be really greedy. But when you look at fashion right now, you look at the market right now, this bunch of people who are out there, you know, setting businesses up, what what are the kind of opportunities? Where do you, I mean, where do you think, what would you do if you were in this audience now and you thought, All right, I'm going to set up a fashion business now, what would it look like? Um, well, you know, ironically, I'm, I'm sort of invested in a couple of brands. So I'm sort of in your space, weirdly, um, with, with a couple of things. And, you know, it's tough. It's really, really tough. And, um, and, and it sounds cliched, but you know, the old adages apply. You've, you've got to have a point of difference. You've got, you've got to have something that is, is world-class compared to anybody else in your space. Mm. Um, and if you're not, then I just think you're going to struggle. And, you know, I'm telling you this and I'm, I've got my own brands and, you know, they're not world-class. And I just know that until we can become world-class at whatever it is we're doing, you know, either through design or through uniqueness or, technical capability or you know whatever it is whatever's going to, going to make it stand out and, and the story behind that um so product 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 and then everything else bit of service um, product first oh, well yeah. you know f from a brand perspective you can get away without the sort of amazon ASOS you can service, actually yeah because people for do, a period of time yeah um no, but then you. you know the right brand will sit on some of these platforms as well you know, mm. that, that's not a bad yeah. place to be no that's true that's um, true no, it's, it's, it's really, really tough. And you, you've got to be brutal about, you know, what it is you're doing that differentiates you. Mm. Um, and as my wise old Australian mate, you know, it's distinctive, desirable, defensible. You know, Nice. Can, can you really answer those three things really, really well? Mm. Uh, and if you can, then you've got half a chance. If you're wobbly on one of those, you're going to struggle, I think. Mm. Interesting. You said that, uh, that you do invest in brands so you've got other things going on in your life you're actually quite busy i thought you were sort of taking it easy but you're not really are you got you're quite busy at the moment but i wanted to ask you this i'm not going to ask you if you're going to open a store every time I interview you're like you know open a shop you know, i'm not asking you that i'm going to ask you you're still you're not completely ancient are you did you do you think there's another big move big another bold move in nick robertson's career you're going no, to no 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 Really? <laughs> no. That was really. <laughs> no. You're just um, gonna. You know, well, it's a bit like the boxer going back in the ring after you know you, you know when to hang your gloves up, right? You, you're never going to do it twice. So, so exit with dignity. And and it's um, you know, I like I like the situation now where I, I can be helpful to the board. Um, you know, they do sometimes sort of take some what I say quite seriously, and you know, I, I love that sort of. I've got the interaction without having the responsibility, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm in a good space with, with ASOS. I, I couldn't leave ASOS completely. That would be Ooh, that would be too, too much of a wrench. I wondered yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah I think too much of a wrench. A bit of your and, heart there. Well, and you need that little bit of DNA to keep running through. Mm. Um, you know, we, this is our third chief exec now. Um, you know, we've had four chair people. 
Um, in terms of C-suite, that's pretty much all new. So, you know, who is there that's a sort of, but guys, we've done that, or, but guys, this is what we stand for, you know, so you just need that little bit of DNA at the boardroom, which um, hopefully I can provide. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, hi, Nick. Um, Terry from Thread. Um, thank you. I'm loving this this morning, actually. <laughs> really fun. Um, so we've started to ship from here to the U.S., um, it was interesting hearing you talk about Australia and how quickly that happened. Um, what sort of like one or two of the key points that, that helped you crack the US and I suppose like sank around the time and about having something on the ground there and whether that's necessary early stages or whether you can do it from here? Um, well, that's, that's an interesting one. So so we, before we had a, a warehouse in the US, obviously we'd ship from here. Um, you know, there's that little thing called import duties and all that kind of stuff and VAT. So effectively, you're not getting, you're charging that, but you're not paying it. So effectively, you're winning 20% on your price, right? So you can use that to pay for your shipping. So whilst you're shipping from the UK, you can get away with that. Um, the problem with that is obviously delivery times. So, you know, when you're small, that's fine and customers will wait a week, two weeks. But, you know, when you're ASOS, they kind of want it tomorrow, even in the US. So, so we did it for a while from the UK, but then we had to obviously put logistics on the ground in the US in order to do that next day delivery that they that they kind of want. Um, but on that basis, then you lose the VAT gain. So now it's, but then you're not paying to ship it in the way that you were across the Atlantic. So, you know, you, you just got to work through all those numbers. You know, if you can you can be small and ship it from here and stretch that out for as long as you possibly can. You know, and, and it's worth paying the extra to get it there quicker because that's what they really want. Um, you know, I wouldn't be opening warehouse in the US anytime soon unless you've got real scale. So I think, you know, Boohoo in a, in a similar situation, they were, they were winning in the US because they were shipping from here. Um, and you do get that, that sort of um, that benefit. But yeah, so at some point when you get to the scale, then you've got to go over there. And, and then suddenly, you know, you're not winning that. And it's, you've got the cost of that infrastructure. So I think that they're in that transition period. So we, we did it two years ago. Yeah. You know, they're they're doing it now. So it's, it's a painful move. And then, yeah. you know, you're also talking about splitting stock. You know, when you've got one warehouse, it's fantastic. You know, two warehouses starts to get a bit tricky. Three, four, five warehouses, especially in fashion, you know, it's tricky. And, and, and you know, Amazon, Amazon's biggest issue and our biggest issue is, you know, where's the stock and when do you want it? And sending split orders is suddenly when the economics don't, don't work. Yeah. Um, so you need you need you need to be replicating your stock pool in all your warehouses, which again has a huge cost to it. So, you know, it's it's tricky to navigate. I would suggest. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rosie from Higher Street, which is uh, UK's leading uh, fashion rental marketplace, oh. where ASOS is actually one of our most popular brands. Um, so it was just sort of an open question on obviously the resale um, market is growing faster than traditional e-commerce. I'm obviously working in the rental market. What's your view on these new circular economy and what is ASOS doing to kind of make sure that we're, you know, consuming fashion in a more sustainable way? Great question. And um, I'll start with the real positive. I can't get enough of resale. Um, not least because my 14 year old daughter, you know, that that's where she, that's her first port of call now. So it's, you know, it's, it's everything resale and then she'll go. So, you know, I totally get the significance of it. Um, frustratingly, we were doing it right? 12 years ago. We opened a marketplace and 12 years ago we were getting, you know, we we're looking at eBay going, we should be doing this. 
you know, that was pre-Instagram, so so the shots weren't great. It was hangers on the back of the doors. It was visibly not particularly attractive. Obviously, as the whole Instagram things got better, the you know you'll, you'll know about neither, but the you know the look of it is much better. Um, so I'm frustrated that having been first to it, we're now playing catch up. Um, but I suspect you know we will partner with one of the bigger players sooner rather than later. Um, you know, I think to start from scratch again uh, probably take too long. So I think we'll we'll partner. Um, well, funnily enough, rental when we, we we had conversations with rental, I mean, there were quite a few in the market about. Ten years ago, eight years ago, you know, it was just a bit too soon. Um, you know, I, I see, especially for our customer base. I mean, interesting your demographics actually. You know, resale for twenty somethings all over. You know, rental for twenty somethings. Is it? Is it? The logic makes absolute sense. The resale makes absolute sense. Um, you know, you know. Forget what we. You know, this is a classic case of big business gets big. You know, in terms of monetary value. You know the rental market relative to the resale and sale market is small, but you know that's where the opportunities come in because the big businesses, you know, yeah. don't look at it in a sort of in the way that they should do. You know, yeah. and actually resale started really small and now bloody enormous, right? So you know, hands up, ASOS have not got on that bandwagon quick enough, uh, and we need to play catch up. You did, but you just didn't do that well. Right? <sighs> well. You know. I do remember the, the thing about Philip Green because he used to get very annoyed because you would sell second-hand Topshop, didn't he? <laughs> he would get really upset with you about that. I remember that. <laughs> yes, yeah. Topshop was our biggest brand on market, <laughs> even though we weren't allowed to sell Topshop. It was hilarious. Yeah, yeah another battle. Another another yeah. argument with Philip Green. Hi, Nick. Thanks for a fascinating morning so far. Um, my, I'm Nana. Uh, founder of Hope Fashion and I remember seeing you some years ago and you talked there. My takeaway then was this line that you gave that there'll always be a lot of 25 year olds in the world and that was your target customer. I guess with your brand now over 20 years old, are you still targeting 25 year olds or has, has your customer moved on or have you moved on with your customer? That, that's another good question and, and actually it's the easiest one for me to answer. Um, no is a short answer we will go back and we'll get younger we won't we won't get older and um and being blunt about that that's where my you know having spent 10 years of my working life before this was media buying and back in the day you know we were very specific about target audiences and we were very specific about you know which media we would buy and if, if you look at the sort of women's magazine market um you know it, it was you, I almost used to be able to rattle them up. You know, you start with Just 17, then you went Company Mag, then you went Cosmo Mag, then you went, uh, you know, oh. you sort of moved up, you know, and then you got a bit more luxury. Um, but, but, you know, every, each one of those magazines picked off a market um, and you sort of migrated as a customer through them. Um, and what they didn't do was try and grow old with you. You know, company knew that at some point you'd flip into Cosmo, right? But right when you were a company reader, you you so all the editorial, all the products that were featured, uh, the style, the fashion shoots, the age of the models, you know, all lined up behind these audiences. And, and that's been a real, you know, I think one of our success stories that we've we've just stuck to that and we, we understand it, you know, you irony know. being that we know that a huge swathe of our customers are well over 20 something. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we talk to them in any way that isn't to 20 something, you know. So we keep everything focused on 20 something. The whole business lines up behind that. You'll, you'll know from your own businesses, you know, when you just say 20 something, there's no debate. You know, anybody comes and goes, we can chill where, no, we're not. You know, anybody says we're doing luxury goods, no, we're not. 
You had a few we diversions. We did, and we pulled it. Yeah, so, you know, we, we, we made a mistake. Premium. And we yeah. took it off. Mm. Um, and as soon as the, you know, it's classic, as soon as the buyers started earning more money, then they were buying more luxury goods themselves, and then they wanted to put luxury brands on our site, and then mm. the market department would start putting 150-pound handbags on the email rather than the 22-pound handbags, and suddenly everything's skewed, yeah. you know, and you lose track. So it's like, right, stop, 20 summers again, you know, and we all line up behind that. Mm. So the models, the price, the brands, Everything's really, really clear. Quite a crystallising moment, that, wasn't it? I think you worked that out. Just <laughs> Yeah, which, which was sort of, you know, so, as a wise man said, you can always sell cigarettes at the till, right? So yeah. so you can always sell more. You know, we could do kids wear, we could sell luxury, we could sell this. But but every time you do that, you've just chipped away at what your core proposition is. And, you know, I'd like to think one of the reasons ASOS is still as you know popular today, and it, and it is, it, 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 you know, the own brand is phenomenal. Um I think it's because we've absolutely stuck to that 20-something knitting. Because there'll always be more of them. They'll always, they keep well, coming, don't there'll they? always be more. Yeah. And also, you know, as our 20-somethings grow into 25 and 30 and 35, mm. they don't stop at ASAR. You know, they don't stop shopping at ASAR. They, 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 just... they still come back, but we, it's not how we position it and how yeah. we talk. Um, Paula from Selfridges. Um, just from a people perspective, it sounds like there's a lot of change, innovation, development, um, and not necessarily everyone would have seen your bigger picture. What was the constant that you gave the people in your business? Uh, that, that is another good question. And, and actually, ironically, go back to the fact that we're a quoted company, right? Because, because you're forced to have a strategy. Because <laughs> when you sit down in front of shareholders and institutions and analysts, you know, they want to hear what your strategy is. By the time you've repeated it 30 times, you're sense checking it in your head, you know, does this actually make sense? <laughs> Can we do it? So, and you'd get really good pushback from these people. You know, some people say it's a labor of pain to go and see them. A actually, and, and in some regards it was a labor of pain, but there would always be, and I remember every, you know, road show, so every six months we'd get on the road and the 30 meetings we'd have, there'll be two or three I'd come out and go, why didn't I think of that? Or mm. what a great idea. So, so you're constantly tuning and refining but you're having to repeat it so many times it actually comes ingrained and because you're repeating it it's written down and when you're talking to staff it's coming out you know so again going back to the 20, everything just lines up um so so you know it, it wasn't hard everybody was pretty clear on what we we're doing and where we we're going the frustration came was when we said where we want to do and how where we wanted to go but it wasn't happening in time frames that, that were... kind of made sense and you know the it backlog i'm sure we've all got them you know, mm. when that pot gets bigger, <laughs> then the, you know it, it's frustrating, and 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 you're sort of losing months and years in terms of when you should be doing stuff because this pile of stuff that hasn't been done yet is all sort of growing, and then by the time what you want does get done, it's almost out of date, and you you've gone yeah. again. So you know that's that's the frustration we, we talked about right at the beginning when things just take infinitely take longer forever. than they used to. But in terms of being clear on the story and having to repeat it lots. Good for you. You're a very good. You made me think about a former CEO I had, and I'm not going to say who that was because I'm about to be slightly critical. But you've always been very clear on the vision. Like you knew exactly what you wanted to achieve and who you were, you know, talking to as a business. Um, I had a CEO who was very clear on how he wanted us all to behave. No idea what he wanted to do. You know, it was all like, I want passion, I want loyalty, I want. Then it's like, yeah, but what do you want us to do? You know, and I, it should drive me insane. And I'm wondering about you on the behaviour side. How do you get the behaviours out of your team that you wanted? And what, what did you want Like when you were looking for people to build this business with you? What were you looking for? And how do you get them to do it? I'm sure I mean, some people might have known ASOS from back in those you know, amazing days, or you know, even now to some degree. Mm -hmm. you know, it was just a fun place to work. And, we're, and we're, yeah. you know, it was all open plan. There was no offices. 
you know, we'd all have our team huddles on a Monday. Um, you know, we'd always be walking around doing. You know, it was buzzy. It was it was mm. like the whole thing. So, so people either loved that or or hated it. Um, and we, you know, we certainly didn't get it right every time. Fortunately, there was just so many people coming through the door that we, you know, the ones that didn't quite work out, we could get shot of, and, and <laughs> new ones would come in. And energy. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, we we weren't interviewing on culture. You know, we were just interviewing on sort of, you know. Can you do the job and what sort of personality are you? And you just sort of dunk in that. You know, you, you, it does sort of say that the, the culture sort of comes from the top. I mean, generally speaking, I think I was quite a nice guy. We, we had a lot of fun. Um, you know, we were hard, but not stupidly hard. We let people sort of give them enough rope, you know, some didn't quite make it, but most did. Yeah. And it's lovely when you're growing. When, when you've got the wind on your back, it's just so much easier, right? And that, that old adage is not till the tie goes out, you see who's standing there with trousers around their ankles. When the wind's on your back, yeah. you, 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 it masks a lot of um, stuff. I'm Nick from Neem. A lovely uh, conversation this morning. Really enjoyed it. I wanted to ask a broad uh, question, really, about what impact you think climate change awareness will have on fashion in the, the next five or ten years. Before sort of climate change came along, you know, everybody was worried about ethical supply chains and labor and slave labor and where you know you know and we, we've spent years tightening all that up um because fast fashion you know didn't bask itself in glory in that space um and you know to be in fast fashion you're generally moving your sort of supply base around anyway because you, you can't just rely on certain territories because one year it's beading one year it's lace one year it's denim one year it's jersey you know so you so you are doing a bit of that moving around and we always said look you know when, when are customers actually going to vote with their feet now? Because because you can't sell a dress for nine ninety nine and expect that to have been adhered to, which is why we always, you know, we never sold a dress for nine ninety nine, you know, but others do, right? Um, so we've always we've always tried to make ourselves better than everybody else in fast fashion. But you know, even something as simple as that, there's still some very big retailers who who sell product to that price so the customers just aren't conscious of, or even if they're conscious about it, they're ignoring it or they're conscious about it, they're talking about it but when it comes to the tills they're just so, yeah. so you know i'm not i'm not saying that's going to happen again and it's not you know and we have moved in, in supply chain but but it, it's not as drastic as you'd expect and then i think you've just got to cast your mind back to as a as a 20 something you know you've only got a certain amount of money in your pocket right and you're just going to buy what you can within the price band that you can and and you're not really thinking about how ethical that supply chain is at that point. So I don't think it's going to be customer-led. I want it to be, but I think the price point has just proved to us it's not. Mm. You know, it's more about the boards and the responsibility and our obligation to the wider world, the planet. So, so you know, the, it's it is changing and it's moving. And you know, I, I think ASOS has actually been pretty good actually at, at all this. You know, we've said it's because that's what our customers want. In reality, it's just it's, it's less so. And I'm just being honest you know that that's just a fact so I, th I think the obligation is is you know we will do what's right and continue to do what's right um you know not great in a world where inflation's running riot you know prices are probably gonna have to go up anyway you know and if we're going to do more of that stuff that's going to have more pressure on pricing um the good news is you know we live in the uk and we're a responsible country and we we will do that you know the danger is for us uk businesses you get the the likes of Sheen and all the rest of it, mm. you know, coming in and completely undercutting us again. And, you know, customers haven't spurned Sheen. They're, they're all over it, right? Well, listen, thanks.
I really appreciate it. I really do. Because I know that you're busy and you don't have to do this sort of thing. You are. Well, you're busy doing... I don't know. What do you do? What are you busy doing nowadays? I've got an AFC Wimbledon board meeting this afternoon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got... We got relegated as well. Jesus oh, Christ. Oh, football. <laughs> oh, well, that's another, that's another story. You are, No, listen, you don't have to do it. And you did it. And I really appreciate it. And I hope that the audience really appreciated it as well. And our friends at Klarna certainly did. So thank you very much, Nick. And thank you all of you for listening and for your fabulous questions. If you feel inspired to make a bold move and would like to find out how Klarna can help you, please visit www.klarna.com business and hear more inspiring stories from the Bold Move series and indeed from our sister podcast In Conversation, which is also produced in partnership with Klarna for Business, please visit www.theindustry.fashion slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcast platform to ensure you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoy what we do, please leave us a rating and review. Until next time.